invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to our text, a short text, but there is much therein. Let us turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 being the text for the sermon this morning. These words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So far, the reading of our text. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response from Psalm 122, stanza 3, following the sermon. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, The text for this morning's sermon is the second last beatitude. Before we unpack it, it's good to consider some key things about the beatitudes. For one, the beatitudes are a depiction or a description of the kingdom citizen that is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ is describing here the kind of person who follows him as king. The kind of person that he creates by his grace into his disciple. And so as kingdom citizens, these then are the kinds of qualities and characteristics that we are called to display, each one of them. And that includes peacemaking among them. And another thing to know and remember is that these qualities described in the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, being pure in heart, being meek, being merciful, these are all unnatural. They're all unnatural. People aren't born peacemakers. People aren't born with the personalities that that exhibit these traits that God is calling us to show. In other words, what Jesus is speaking of here is the result of grace. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't take courses in order to become a peacemaker in the sense that Christ means to speak of it here. It's a gift of God's grace. That means one of the things that we ought to be doing, will be doing following this sermon is asking for, seeking, praying for this gift of being a peacemaker. And so we come to our theme this morning, simply this, blessed are the peacemakers. We'll see first who they are and secondly, how they are blessed. First, we look at who they are. Who are peacemakers? Well, let me give you first who the world classifies as peacemakers. Because what the world understands as peacemaking is not the same as what God understands as peacemaking. The world gives a psychological definition. The world defines a peacemaker as one who hates fighting. A peacemaker is someone who is a pacifist. A pacifist is someone who refuses to fight in wars, refuses to join the army, refuses to pick up weapons, or anything like that. 
A pacifist is someone who wants to steer clear around hostility. And so the world says that a peacemaker is someone who wants to avoid arguments, avoid debates, or anything that that makes anyone feel uncomfortable. And they choose positions, they choose points of view in which everyone is satisfied. Just like in matters of good diplomacy, they say that the route to peacemaking is getting both sides together and getting to the point where each side feels like they have won. Is that not the idea that many have of peacemaking? And we could say more. In the world's view of peacemaking, the objective is to pursue unity at the expense of principles. They say, we're called to bury the hatchet. We're called to let things go. We're called to forget our our differences and and get along to go along and, and go along to get along. We don't have to fight about truth or right. And so our culture bends over backwards to to dodge questions of right and wrong and instead seeks to do what achieves consensus, what, what satisfies the majority. That's their idea of peacemaking. And insofar as the world is familiar with the Bible, well, they, would, they consider Old Testament characters like Jeremiah and Elijah and Amos and Zephaniah or any prophet who, who dared to speak words of judgment to not be peaceable enough. For they brought a message, all these, all these prophets had brought a message that had sharp edges, that, that cut through the, the warm and, and the fuzzy. So far as many were concerned and even are concerned today, these men were not peacemakers But they were disturbers of the peace. They were troublers of Israel. They were breakers of unity. But is that an accurate understanding of what the Bible defines as peace? If we engage in a deeper study of the scriptures and we see our text, our short little text within the context of the whole Bible we discover that the Bible has a, a very countercultural definition of peacemakers. For notice that our text does not say, blessed are the peaceable, or blessed are those whose personalities are tranquil and quiet and unobtrusive and, and never think it's necessary to speak up and, and be heard. Those are not the kind of people that are in view here when Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's speaking of those who, who make, who bring about, who work for peace. Now to talk about a peacemaker, the implication is that peace needs to be made because peace is broken. We live in a state of, uh, not in a state of peace, but to, to coin a new word, in a state of unpeace. 
Now, when did this unpeace originate? Well, you all know the story from Genesis 3, even the young boys and girls here, many of them will remember that, that at that time when the serpent, Satan, came to the woman and her husband and, and misled them and lied to them and, and they followed him and they listened to him and peace instantaneously disintegrated. And you also remember how in the same Genesis passage, it was God who established enmity. For on the one side, Adam and Eve had made an alliance with the devil. And, and on the other side was God. And God put enmity between the woman and the serpent. God created the antithesis between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, Scripture calls Christ, Jesus Christ, our peace. We read that in Ephesians. He, he's the prince of peace. He's the peacemaker, the ultimate peacemaker. Think of Christmas time. Jesus Christ is born, and what do the angels proclaim? Peace on earth. And you might think that Jesus Christ came to bring peace where, where there was this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, no. The peace that Jesus came to bring was between man and God and bring the two sides together to bring Adam and Eve back over to God's side so that their alliance with the devil would be broken and, so, and they would instead become his enemies. Jesus never came to, to erase the antithesis. No, Jesus came to bring peace between God and the church. As we read in Romans 5 verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we read in Ephesians 2, that Jesus Christ not only made peace, but he, he is peace. And he also preached peace. That is to say, he brought about reconciliation with God through his blood. And, and that is what enables peace among people. Also, as that gospel of Christ's shed blood is preached to people. So what then is peace? Is peace the absence of warfare? No, it isn't. We've just seen that peace is, is the continuation of hostility between Satan and the human race, particularly the church. Peace isn't the absence of warfare or strife. No, peace is reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, peace is only available through the cross. The cross is the price of peace. And therefore, we can never be the kind of people who strive for peace at any price. There is no peace at any price. There is only peace at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means peace is not the same as, as getting along it's not the same as appeasement or, or accommodation. 
And having said that, we have to face this question. How are we supposed to handle all the unpeace happening around us and happening in our own life, even in our own flesh, and between the church and the world, between faith and unbelief? How do we deal with that? If we're supposed to be peacemakers, why is there no truce? Why can our flesh and our spirit not coexist between the the inclinations of the old nature and the reflexes of the new? Why no truce between the church and the world where we just get along? Well, because the same Christ who said, my peace I leave with you, also said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Not a physical sword, that's the wrong, uh, wrong idea, no, but a spiritual sword, the Word of God. And what is the effect, boys and girls, when the, the Word of God comes from the pulpit or or from around the supper table, or, or from the elders on, on home visitation, or when it comes to call straying sheep back to the fold, what is the effect of, of the word? Well, it's a sword. It, it leads to division. It divides. The word of God is sharp, and it, and it cuts into our flesh, and it cuts out the thoughts and the affections that, that do not jive with, with holiness and righteousness and purity so that we, are, we part with the sins that, that we used to cling to so closely. But the word divides not only our hearts, but it also divides families. We read that in Christ's words in Matthew 10. The word divides fathers from their children, mothers from their daughters. The, the word even divides churches between faithful and unfaithful. The word divides communities so that a man's enemies are those of his own household. Now, do we take all of that seriously? In our attempts at, at pacification, do we take seriously what Christ said about the word dividing families? Or are we tempted to, to try to sand it down and smooth it over and, and try to make it more palatable to our sensitivities? Well, make no mistake, peacemaking is a costly enterprise because the choice comes down to consigning oneself to the cross, or bowing to our evil desires and appetites and ambitions. The choice may come down to the word of God or our flesh and blood, our own kids, our own siblings, even our own parents. And this is what can make the task of any elder or parent or anyone in a position of authority so hard for where there is disorder where, or where there is a lack of peace, the price of peace comes at the cost of discipline. And boys and girls, you know how this goes when disorder takes over a classroom. Suddenly, 
your security is at risk. Anything could happen to you at any moment. But when you have a teacher who, who comes in and who maintains order through discipline and doesn't allow the children to, to say what they want or, or do what they want or get up whenever they want, the outcome of that discipline is peace. And parents understand that just as well, le that letting their child go their own way at, at every turn is not the route to a peaceful child. No, peacemaking is costly, hard work in the home, in school, in the church, and everywhere else. Well, the world's solution to making peace is by ignoring differences and ignoring sin. While the Bible teaches us that we make peace by removing sin, Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, how do you recognize a church that, that is made up of peacemakers? Is it a church where there are no disagreements, where there are no painful applications of discipline, where there, a church where there are no ruffled feathers? No, that's not a peacemaking church. We may legitimately wonder if such a church is alive. A peacemaking church is made up of people who are, who are constantly called to the cross and who constantly call one another to the cross of Christ where there's reconciliation with God, where, where we see the removal of sin, where we see the where there's the pursuit of, of greater holiness and, and consistency and obedience and spirituality because of thankfulness. And this means also evangelism. Where did that come from? Evangelism. This is what this passage is also about. Evangelism is not an, an optional extra for a small group of members who, who show a particular interest and passion toward it. Evangelism and being a peacemaker are the same work. That is to say, that is not to say that all are equally well equipped for all aspects of evangelism. We can recognize that, but all of us share in the responsibility of living lives and speaking words that aim at the conversion of others. And what's conversion? It's making peace, leading them to find peace between them and God. And that's why it's a crying shame that so many churches even in our own country here in Canada, think that they can teach the way of peace coming about by tolerating everything and anything and saying to, to someone living in their sin, just keep sinning. God accepts you and, and, and doesn't disapprove of anything you do and neither do we. See, they've bought into the thinking that, that you can have peace through tolerance of sin. And they're just sending people down the road 
to hell, the ultimate lack of peace. We love you so much that we can tolerate that. But peacemakers say, no, we love you so much that, that we cannot tolerate that. We have to tell you where you're headed if you do not repent and turn around. You need Jesus Christ. You need the peace that passes all understanding, that peace that, that you see in a, in a believer at their deathbed, the deathbed of a dying saint who can say, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the kind of peace we also see with a man who, who loses all of his possessions, all, all things dear to him, including his own children. And he says, these words are recorded in Scripture by Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When people see that, they wonder, how can anyone say that? How can those Christians be like that? Well, because we point them to the cross where Christ brought us peace. We point to the, the elements on the Lord's supper table, the broken bread and the poured out wine representing Christ's broken body and shed blood. We know that from that, the high price that was paid to bring us peace. And, and we know that nothing can take this peace away from us. Who would not want this peace if they knew what it was and where to find it? And through our evangelistic task, we can show them where it's found. But let us now consider, secondly, how they are blessed, how the peacemakers are blessed. The text goes on to read, for they shall be called Sons of God, says Jesus Christ. Sons of God is, is a common metaphor or word picture to, to describe the reality of like father, like children. And think of the many, many times that the Bible speaks of this as the Bible in many places describes us as God's children and as God's children, we are, are, are God's, God wants to teach us to imitate our parents. And, and to, we, the truth is we, we do imitate our parents. We look like our parents, act like our parents in many ways. And, and that kind of principle is here applied to God in a way. That is to say, if we are to be children of God, then we must maintain the antithesis in terms of, of sin, in terms of our loyalties in this world. We set ourselves against them, and we refuse to bring together what God has set apart. We refuse the false peace, the, the devil's peace, the, the illusion of peace that is no peace, that is what it is to be a child of God, to be a son of God, to act like the Father. And there's another dimension to this as well. The promise that our text gives us is that we shall be 
we shall be called sons of God. Now, I think it is, we know it is true already. Uh, to some degree, this is true. John 1 verse 12 tells us that those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But there is a future perfection that we also read about. For example, in Romans 8, particularly verse 23, these words, we groan inwardly, writes Paul, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So there's going to come a time when it is going to be publicly manifested to the world that we are God's children here and now, for he made us his own, but what we shall hereafter be, that he has not yet shown. For then as God's children, we will enjoy the fullness of the peace that Christ came to bring. The fullness uh, that the peace of the peace that the ultimate peacemaker has made. A peace that will never end, never be undone, and never be overturned, and never taken away from us. Amen.